Good morning. In today's headlines, Congress at a crossroads before a potential government shutdown Sunday and whispers of a possible replacement for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. A recap of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s town hall in New Jersey. We get an update from a reporter who was on the ground at the opening of Kennedy's campaign headquarters. House Democrats calling the first Biden impeachment inquiry a farce and contending that Republicans don't have any direct evidence against the president. We have the key takeaways and reactions from lawmakers. A video allegedly shows a middle school boy who identifies as a girl violently attacking multiple students. We have the latest on the case. Elon Musk is on a visit to Eagle Pass, Texas to show what he calls an unfiltered view of the border situation. We have his comments. The finals of the NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant kicks off tomorrow. One contestant tells us how the event changed her misconceptions about women. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Friday, finally, September 29th. Yes, and the big day is tomorrow for our that's beauty pageant right, finals. That's right. That's right. Are you time. are you going to watch? I well, you know, it's it's our big event. So on TV, well, I, yeah. If you have the chance, go. I'm going to be there. Um, but also some serious news today. It's one day until the beauty pageant, but two days before a possible government shutdown. Congress is split on the path forward with the House and Senate at odds on a bipartisan bill to avoid it. A shutdown would stop paychecks for millions of federal workers and leave millions of troops and federal law enforcement like border agents at work without pay. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest efforts to avert a shutdown. Congress is at a crossroads before a seemingly imminent government shutdown on Sunday. Lawmakers in the House of Representatives stayed late into the night Thursday and passed three or four spending bills, none of which would avert a shutdown and are unlikely to make it through the Senate. Funding for the Department of Agriculture failed, with 27 Republicans voting against it, while funding to finance the Department of Defense, Department of State, and the Department of Homeland Security advanced. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer urged Speaker McCarthy to follow the upper chamber's approach. Its bipartisan stopgap bill known as a continuing resolution, or CR, would keep the government open through November 17th. The solution remains clear. Speaker McCarthy needs to stop letting the MAGA radicals drive his decisions and do the obvious and sensible thing. Senator Josh Hawley says the solution is for Schumer to address Ukraine separately. The House is passing a probes bill. We should, we've so far passed zero appropriations bills in the Senate. I'd just like to point out, zero. So. We're not really in a position to cast stones vis-a-vis -vis the House. I mean, people complain about the House, it's done nothing. So my view is pass a short-term CR clean. Senator Rick Scott took a similar stance, saying Ukraine deserves its own bill with amendments and discussion. I'm on budget. We don't do a budget, right? They don't do a budget. Then they'll do a CRO. We had, couldn't get it done. Didn't even try. Couldn't get it done. And then, then we'll have an omnibus at Christmas that will spend more money than you could ever imagine. The Senate stopgap bill could take until Monday to pass if GOP Senator Ron Paul slows down the process over demands it drop the $6.2 billion price tag for Ukraine. GOP senators are trying to cut a deal to give Paul an amendment vote in exchange for allowing the process to speed up. Schumer told senators to be prepared for a procedural vote on the bill Saturday morning if they fail to secure a time agreement. 
The bill is sure to meet opposition from some House Republicans, with McCarthy already having vowed to amend it. No, that thing is dead over here. Are you kidding me? Why? Well, first of all, you continue spending. You have $6.2 billion for Ukraine. Um, they do nothing to secure our southern border. Um, that is just a non-starter. The Senate needs to get real. A group of Senate negotiators are currently working to add border security amendments to the Senate stopgap bill. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is bringing his own continuing resolution to the floor Friday in hopes of meeting Saturday's deadline. I believe we need a stopgap measure to keep government open, and that's what we'll propose on Friday to be able to have, keep the government open and while at the same time helping us secure the border. He says some Democratic senators he's talked to are open to border provisions in the Senate's current bill. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Conservative House Republicans are working on a contingency plan in case of efforts to oust Speaker McCarthy. The House Speaker has been facing verbal threats to his position for weeks. Majority Whip Tom Emmer's name was reportedly suggested as a potential alternative in private discussions by former Freedom Caucus Chair Andy Biggs. That's according to anonymous Republican sources who spoke to the Washington Post. Biggs denied the claims and says rumors about the group backing Emmer's, Emmer are completely false. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise was also being considered, but not as a first choice due to health issues. Emmer told Politico he fully supports McCarthy and has, in his words, zero interest in palace intrigue. Republicans would be challenged to find someone with the same level of GOP support as McCarthy with enough votes to become Speaker. Next, we're going to get an update on RFK Jr.'s town hall and the opening of his campaign headquarters. Jeff Lauderback, a reporter with the Epic Times, joins us live. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what did Kennedy say at his speech last night in Elizabeth, New Jersey? Well, he is reiterating the message of unity. Uh, if you look at the banners in the background at his events, it talks about healing the divide. And that's what he talked about. He talks about rooting out corporate corruption. He talks about, he's the only candidate really talking about BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street on how they own most of the S&P 500 companies and how they're buying up single family homes across the country. And his plan, RFK Jr.'s plan, if he gets elected, he vows to make it difficult uh, for companies to buy single family homes. And uh, that's one of his messages uh, about um, rooting out corruption and helping with the housing crisis. Yeah, and we know that he's also pushed for ending these forever wars. But what was it like there? How did the crowd react? Well, it's a common theme. I've been covering the campaign since May, and it, it, there's enthusiasm. A lot of people are former Trump voters, and a lot of people tell me it reminds them of Trump uh, when it wasn't President Trump, it was Donald Trump running for president in 2016. The enthusiasm behind the campaign because the country is in need of change, a lot of people think. And, but what's interesting is it continue, he, RFK Jr. continues to get support from conservatives, independents, liberals. I talked to a few people in the audience last night and they said they voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. One person said, uh, she still likes Trump, but he's, she used the word exhausting. <laughs> so uh, that, I, I think people, Democrats are realizing that uh, President Biden might not be the ideal choice. 
and Republicans, uh, at least some Republicans at these events, conservatives are finding that RFK is a uh, ideal alternative. It's interesting, Jeff, that you mentioned that these former Trump voters would back RFK Jr. And, you, you know, UK-based YouGov poll, it showed that if RFK were to run as an independent, 63% of Americans would support that, and that he would get 17% of the vote in the general election, whereas in the Democratic primary, he would only get 15%. And it's unprecedented for a candidate to get more votes from the actual American total populace than from their own party. So it's really interesting. Yeah, well, I'm in New Jersey now, headed to Atlanta this weekend. Atlanta, or Georgia is one of the states where uh, Democrats are talking about uh, not counting the delegates if, uh, if someone votes for someone other than Joe Biden in the uh, Democratic primary. And I know that's, uh, that might sway RFK Jr. to run as an independent, because that's how the DNC back earlier this year voted to move South Carolina to the top primary and boot New Hampshire and Iowa down the line. And New Hampshire and Iowa says they're not gonna comply so those are going to be unsanctioned primaries, and RFK Jr. has a real good chance of winning those. Uh, Biden might not even be on the ballot, so, but the DNC is threatening to uh, not count those delegates. So that's, again, that's why uh, RFK Jr. is thinking about running as an independent, and that, that can uh, blow up the whole election because then you have RFK Jr. with his support, you have people who still support President Biden, then you have uh, President Trump, who obviously has his base. Right, a lot of friction there between the DNC and RFK Jr. So Jeff Lauterbach, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you. Thank you. Former President Trump has no plans to attend any future Republican primary debates. A senior advisor to Trump's 2024 campaign confirmed the decision to reporters. He said of Trump, quote, he said he's not going to attend the debates plural, and that's his position until it's not. The advisor added that the debates had become more like a contest for who's going to be the designated survivor. Trump skipped the first and the second Republican primary debates. We have more updates on the prosecution of former President Trump in Georgia. In a surprise decision, Trump is not seeking to move his case to federal court. Former President Trump's lawyers said on Thursday that Trump will not seek to move the Georgia election case against him from state to federal court. This could simplify his path to trial. As Trump's legal team put it, this decision is based on his well-founded confidence that this honorable court intends to fully and completely protect his constitutional right to a fair trial and guarantee him due process of law. Five of Trump's co-defendants are trying to move their cases to the federal level. Trump was initially expected to join them because he might face a friendlier jury in a federal court than in Fulton County, Georgia, a Democratic stronghold. Seeking to move the case would also have mired it in hearings and appeals. Prosecutors are pushing to try all 19 defendants together as soon as October 23rd. But the judge in the case says he's skeptical about that timeline. On Wednesday, Trump co-defendant Sidney Powell accused Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis of prosecutorial misconduct. Powell's attorney said in a court filing that Fulton County prosecutors must have presented a misleading and false case to the grand jury, or the grand jury simply rubber-stamped the indictment. Powell is asking for transcripts from both grand juries. Meanwhile, the Georgia state senator who demanded an investigation into Fonnie Willis was suspended from the GOP caucus Thursday. Georgia Senate Republicans said State Senator Colton Moore knowingly misled people during his call for an investigation, caused unnecessary tension and hostility, and put his colleagues at risk of personal harm. 
Moore responded saying, I will continue to expose Fonnie Willis and the rhinos covering for her. In other Trump news, the trial for the former president's fraud case in New York will go forward as planned. An appeals court yesterday rejected Trump's bid for a delay. The decision clears the way for Judge Arthur Ngoran to preside over a non-jury trial starting Monday in Manhattan. This is part of New York Attorney General Letitia James's civil lawsuit into Trump and the Trump Organization. And Gorin ruled on Tuesday that Trump and his business were liable for fraud and that they inflated the value of their properties. The decision revokes the Trump Organization's business certificates in New York and shifts control of some of his companies to someone appointed by the court. Trump denies any wrongdoing. And stay with us as House Democrats contend that Republicans don't have any direct evidence against the president. We have the key takeaways and reactions from lawmakers. And Elon Musk makes a visit to the southern border following a sharp influx of illegal immigrants. He offers a warning and proposes a solution. That's after the break. Welcome back. Did President Biden benefit from his son's foreign business dealings? Republican lawmakers say yes, while Democrats say no. And today's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reviews the arguments from yesterday's impeachment inquiry hearing. House Republicans Thursday launched the first hearing of their impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Chairman of the House Oversight Committee James Comer believes the evidence is building against the president. Since assuming our Republican majority in January, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has uncovered a mountain of evidence revealing how Joe Biden abused his public office for his family's financial gain. For years, President Biden has lied to the American people about his knowledge of and participation in his family's corrupt business schemes. He said Biden repeatedly lied about his knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. Joe Biden also lied to the American people about his family making money in China. He continued to lie about it even when the House Oversight Committee uncovered bank wires revealing how the Bidens received millions from Chinese companies with significant ties to Chinese intelligence and the Chinese Communist Party. The alleged business is that Biden's son Hunter was selling his father's influence to foreign businessmen and governments in exchange for millions of dollars in payments, and that those payments were being shared with the president's family. Witness Jonathan Turley said the president's son Hunter was clearly committing a crime. Many people now accept that what Hunter Biden did was rather raw and open influence peddling. So the only question is, uh, was the president involved in that? The question of Biden's involvement in his son's business dealings was highly debated. Ranking member James Raskin said Republicans don't have a shred of evidence against President Biden. The majority sits completely empty-handed with no evidence of any presidential wrongdoing, no smoking gun, no gun, no smoke. Turley said Biden likely did benefit. This idea that you can have millions going to a politician's family and that's not a benefit, um, I think is pretty fallacious. Representative Lisa McCain said in 2014, then Vice President Biden met with the Romanian president to discuss a corrupt businessman. Later, the businessman's company, Bladen Enterprises, began paying money to Biden's family. 
Between November 2015 and May 2017, Bladen Enterprises deposited over $3 million into Robinson Walker's LLC business account. But the, then the Biden family accounts received more than $1 million from Robinson Walker's accounts after these deposits were made. Ironically, 16 of those 17 payments occurred why Joe Biden was vice president. Another issue of contention was whether or not Republicans had the authority to hold the hearing in the first place. Democrats said the rules required them to have a full House vote. Speaker Kevin McCarthy initiated the inquiry two weeks ago. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. It's not clear whether or not the impeachment inquiry can continue without a House vote. One witness said former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi similarly began an impeachment inquiry of Trump, but that the House voted on it a few days later. House Oversight Chair James Comer issued new subpoenas at the conclusion of the first impeachment inquiry hearing. Comer is seeking personal and business bank records from Hunter Biden and James Biden, the president's brother. Comer said witness testimony confirms the evidence compiled by the committee into President Biden's role in his family's businesses. And switching to the border now, Elon Musk is on a visit to Eagle Pass, Texas, where he met with local officials and law enforcement. The tech billionaire said his visit serves to give an unfiltered view of the situation. Musk posted a video selfie of his visit to social media platform X. He called for a greatly expanded legal immigration system and suggested welcoming hardworking, honest migrants while barring entry for those breaking the law. I think we want to do both things, uh, smooth out legal immigration and, and then uh, uh, stop, uh, you know, a, a sort of a flow, a flow of people that is uh, of such a magnitude that is actually we're leading to a collapse of social services uh, where uh, even uh, America's largest city, New York, is buckling under the pressure of uh, just how many um, illegal immigrants are, are going to New York. If, if New York can't handle it, well, pretty much uh, no part of the country can. Musk, a native of South Africa, noted his own status as an immigrant to the United States and called himself extremely pro-immigrant. His visit coincides with a surge in illegal immigrant crossings with tens of thousands reported in recent days. And many questions but few answers in the first congressional hearing on Maui's wildfire and the island's electric provider. The House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee questioned Hawaiian electric officials on how the fire started and whether the electrical grid in Lahaina was maintained properly. Hawaiian Electric CEO Shili Kimura wrote in a letter before the hearing that downed lines caused the initial fire, but the fire department put out that blaze. She said power lines had been de-energized for more than six hours when another fire started in the same area. Hawaiian Energy official Mark Glick also submitted written testimony detailing plans to create a microgrid system where parts of the grid could be shut down when necessary. Should convicts be allowed to vote after they complete their sentences? A federal appeals court on Thursday agreed to consider a ruling over the issue in Mississippi. 
Mississippi state constitution mandates lifetime disenfranchisement or voter disqualification for people convicted of crimes including murder, rape and theft. A three-judge panel of the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the law last month. The same court on Thursday agreed to hold a hearing of the case before all 16 of its active judges. The decision revives the law for the time being. A group of convicts sued the state in 2018 to regain the right to vote. They argued lifetime disenfranchisement is a cruel and unusual punishment. And coming up, a violent attack on a middle school girl by another student sparks outrage online. We have the footage and the latest on the case. A California bill critics say would allow kids 12 and over to leave home without parental consent awaits the governor's signature. Entity spoke with the legal firm Facts, Law, Truth, Justice after the break. Welcome back. Videos of a middle school boy who allegedly identifies as female attacking multiple girls at a school has gone viral. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the recordings and their aftermath. And a caution to viewers, some may find the following footage disturbing. A female student at Hazelbrook Middle School in Oregon walks down the hall unaware of the brutal attack about to unfold. Seemingly unconcerned about inflicting serious injury, the attacker violently pulls the girl's head back and forth. A couple of final blows, then some foul language. The victim's mom posted about the attack on social media saying, I cannot even put into words my anger at the situation after watching this horrific video. To the school, where were the supervisors? Why wasn't anyone present in the hallways? I don't want excuses, I want answers. The video was shared on Twitter by Ben Edel, the Republican nominee for the Senate district where the school is. He wrote, what you're seeing is a large boy who identifies as a girl ambush a smaller girl from behind. Both of these children are the victims of the adults that run this school district. The district has been criticized for allowing students who identify as another sex to use whichever restroom they prefer and other policies. A second video begins with apparently the same boy shoving a girl to the ground. Another girl soon faces off with the attacker. She is whipped to the ground. More violent blows rain down as people yell in shock and fear. Charges are reportedly pending in the case. The Tualatin Police Department says they have received a report of the assault and passed the case on to the Washington County Juvenile Department. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a controversial bill into law this week. It prevents school districts from removing books they deem inappropriate. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with an attorney from Facts, Law, Truth, Justice about another California bill now awaiting Newsom's signature. Assembly Bill 665 is sponsored by California Senator Scott Weiner and Assemblywoman Wendy Carrillo. The law would allow kids 12 and up to leave home and check into a residential facility without parental consent. Attorney Nicole Pearson discusses the bill. 665 again basically says that a child can leave their child their parents home at any time without notice and for any reason 
that is a complete affront to due process of law, which is guaranteed in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. federal constitution, as well as the California Constitution. It is one of the most important and sacrosanct rights that all of us have. We must be given notice that our rights are in jeopardy. Pearson says AB 665 completely deprives parents of those rights by eliminating current legal requirements that a child must be the victim of abuse, incest, or neglect before they can be removed from their parents' home without notice. So that's the first concern, due process rights. Um, also, the fundamental constitutionally protected right of parents to direct the upbringing, the care, the education, the health, um, the religious um, uh, training of their children. That's another direct affront. It also is an affront to parents' uh, rights to speak freely, to exercise their religion. All a child would need to check into a potentially dangerous shelter is for a so-called professional person to agree. But according to the bill, that can be a counselor trainee or a social work intern. Bill sponsors Wiener and Carrillo, neither of whom have children, say the bill enables kids who are Medi-Cal recipients to receive mental health services for free. But Pearson says that goal could easily be achieved without subjecting parents to a potential nightmare scenario or exposing children to unknown dangers of overburdened shelters with little supervision and the potential for predators. The attorney states that simply amending one word from the Health and Safety Code would achieve this. Adamantly oppose this bill. Pearson says seeing the effect these bills have on people in real life fuels her and her law practice, facts, law, truth, justice, to continue to fight for people's rights. I see the families who are being torn apart. I see the children who are being shoved into government systems and programs without resources and support who are being abused, neglected, and trafficked. Being a voice for the voiceless is something the attorney says she takes very seriously. Pearson says Governor Newsom's recent decision not to sign another controversial bill, AB 957, which would have forced judges to consider a parent's affirmation of a child's chosen gender in custody battles, shows the importance of keeping the pressure on. She is calling on those who are concerned about children's and parents' rights to go to protectkidsca.com. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. We're going to switch up gears here and bring you some of the latest headlines rapid fire. In the story, I want to warn you, some viewers may find this video footage disturbing. The rededication of a controversial statue in Albuquerque was the site of a shooting. The video posted on Instagram shows a scuffle after a group of men approached the suspect who was wearing a MAGA hat. He jumps a small retaining wall to escape before producing a gun. The reason for the scuffle is unclear, but police have the alleged shooter in custody. The condition of the shooting victim is unknown. Authorities in New York seized over 40 pounds of what they believe is fentanyl. It was found six blocks from the Bronx daycare where a one-year-old child was killed after a suspected exposure to the drug. Juan Gabriel Herrera Vargas was arrested Tuesday. He faces several charges, including operating as a major trafficker and criminal possession of a controlled substance. The woman arrested while live streaming the Philadelphia looting is out of jail on bail. Deja Blackwell thanked her supporters and said her lawyer advised her against giving interviews. The social media influencer faces six felonies, including burglary and conspiracy. 
A couple arrested in Texas are the first people to be charged under the new federal Big Cat Act. They were arrested for selling a Margay cub and trying to sell a Jaguar cub. The pair didn't have a license to buy, sell, trade or transport exotic animals. If convicted, they could receive up to five years in prison and a $20,000 fine. Going into break now, China blocks a U.S. executive from leaving the country. Find out why they won't let him go. And is China boosting Russia's military capabilities while providing support in their war efforts? We're bringing a foreign affairs expert to discuss this. Welcome back. Chinese firms are reportedly increasingly critical in Russia's economy. CNBC reports they're also boosting Russia's military capabilities while providing support in their war efforts. Let's find out more about this and the relationship between the two nations. We're bringing in Greg Copley to discuss this. He is the president of the International Strategic Studies Association. Good morning, Greg. It's good to have you this morning. Now, first, let's talk about how significant China's help is to Russia at this point, actually. How dependent is Russia? Well, Russia is dependent on China for the basic uh, manufacturers and, and consumer goods for the civil society, but it's not critically dependent on uh, the People's Republic of China for military assistance. Uh, the PRC is known to be providing uh, non-lethal products to the Russian armed forces, but this is not critical to the war effort. Uh, it's certainly a, a help but the real impact of China's help to Russia is in the civil sector. It's part of a growing uh, trade region uh, which uh, gets around the U.S. and Western sanctions. Right. We will talk about this in a little bit, but um, let's speak, uh, touch on the what China is helping Russia with exactly. So they're saying they are not providing, sending weapons or anything like that. So what is it that they're sending Russia that's important in the war? Well, uh, basically, as far as we can tell, it's uh, non-lethal items like helmets, uh, clothing and the like. Uh, but they, the nearest they come to providing something of real military assistance is in the supply of unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, in other words. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as far as we know, not uh, including unmanned combat aerial vehicles, in other words, the ones that carry weapons. Uh, but that could be uh, the case. They are providing uh, UAVs which could perhaps be armed by Russia, but that's uh, a consumable in a sense, and it's not itself a kinetic weapon. Hmm. But it seems you're saying that the biggest relationship there is the help that they get in the civil sector. So what happens here when sanctioned states like uh, Russia and China, they start turning to each other like this for trade? How effective are sanctions then in this case? Is that a way to circumvent them? Oh, certainly it's a way to circumvent them. Uh, the People's Republic of China and Russia have built a, an entirely new trading block, very much like Cold War One. only this time it's much more effective. And uh, the uh, PRC, Russia uh, controlled block is, uh, shall we say, much more capable of producing advanced goods than was the case in the cold, the first Cold War. So uh, what we're seeing is that sanctions are beginning to build a world in which Western trade is being excluded. And this will come back to haunt 
many Western countries, particularly the United States and Europe. Uh, so the reality is that sanctions are a declining uh, tool of warfare in the sense that they begin to hurt the country applying the sanctions rather than the country being sanctioned. That's quite alarming. Now, um, on that partnership there, also the experts, I, in the past I spoke to some experts that very much doubted how limitless um, China support would be, talking about the no limits partnership there. Where do you see the limits of that partnership? Well, the, the great limit is that the, uh, the People's Republic of China economy is tanking at this stage and there will be a declining ability of Russia uh, to provide uh, energy and food to the People's Republic of China if they don't get paid by Beijing. So that's the real danger. On the other hand, I think it, uh, for it's not so much a matter of, of um, Russia being dependent on China as the reverse. I think China is now dependent on the cheap energy and cheap uh, grain exports and food exports from, from Russia. Uh, so uh, the two countries are, are mutually hostile in so many areas and rivals in so many areas, competitors strategically, uh, that uh, th this is a tenuous relationship at best and uh, it could be it's fragile, but it's mutually dependent at this time under Western pressure. I see. Thank you so much, Greg Copley, for your very interesting insights this morning. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Now, the Chinese regime has blocked a U.S. executive from leaving the country. China often places exit bans on people being investigated or on those helping the Chinese communist regime with an investigation. Michael Chan, a Hong Kong-based corporate restructuring specialist, is assisting China in an investigation. Chan was told by his employer that he can't leave after traveling to China in July. He's allowed to move around freely and is still working. China's exit bans can last for months or even years as investigations drag on. The State Department has advised Americans to reconsider going to China because of its arbitrary enforcement of laws. And now let's head to Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. A suicide bombing in Pakistan killed at least 52 people and injured more than 50. Authorities say the blast happened near a mosque during a religious gathering in a province bordering Afghanistan. No group has claimed responsibility for the bombing. Public prosecutors in the Dutch city of Rotterdam said they sent a letter to the University of a medical student now suspected of killing three people yesterday. The letter described psychotic behaviour and alcohol troubles. He is being held on suspicion of shooting a woman who lived near his home, her daughter and a doctor who taught at the Erasmus Medical Centre. Sweden's Prime Minister summoned the head of the armed forces and the police commissioner in a bid to stem gang violence. The nation was rocked in recent days by a wave of violence that took 11 lives in September alone. Ulf Christensen blamed what he called an irresponsible immigration policy of previous governments for all the problems. The Australian Army will never again fly its fleet of Taipan helicopters following a crash in July that killed four soldiers. The Defence Minister said retiring them early was the only decision that makes sense. The government announced plans in January to replace the 40 European-designed Taipans with 40 US-made Black Hawks. 
A teenager has been arrested in connection with the cutting down of one of the UK's most photographed trees. The Sycamore Gap tree in northeast England was made famous in a key scene in Kevin Costner's 1991 film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The tree stood in a dramatic dip in the Roman-era Hadrian's Wall, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's all from me. Back to you both. Teen pranks getting out of control. Yeah, why would anyone cut down a tree like that? Yeah. Maybe they didn't have a good grasp on what it actually means for them. Uh, who knows? Anyway. And our hearts definitely go out to the victims of terrorism in Pakistan. And in a rare military parade in Seoul, it underscores the tensions between North and South Korea. And we're going to learn more about what significance the showcasing of tanks, drones, and missiles in the South's capital carries. Take a look. Joining me now is Brent Sadler, a senior research fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology in the Center for National Defense. It is great to have you with us, Brent. What message does this military parade in South Korea send to North Korea? Yeah, the message it sends to North Korea is that the South remains a very modern and very capable military, no matter how much and, and how aggressive the North Korean regime gets and new developments and weapon systems, they still lag far behind the very modern military in the South. And how has President Yoon Suk-yeol demonstrated his ability to be a leader in the defense sphere as well as bolstering alliance with the United States? Well, I think he's been very aggressive in signaling his his willingness to partner more, you know, more actively and with actual results with the United States. And he's come to the United States already with summits here in Washington, D.C. and at Camp David. He's indicated clearly that Korea wants to partner with the United States and Japan in a regional security construct that actually can continue to secure the peace. And that's a very meaningful way in the missile defense as well as an in intelligence sharing. Security is a top concern in that part of the world, especially considering that North Korea's Hwasong-17 missiles can reach a range of about 9,000 miles. So what needs to be done here in terms of the alliance to prevent any sort of action by North Korea? Well, for Seoul, first and foremost, the threat from North Korea, it, it's, it's multifaceted. That is the number one concern that they have. And missile defense is a concern in Tokyo. And the threat from North Korea is actually the one that actually got the Japanese to start on a very proactive and more realist approach to national defense for years. And of course, the United States. North Korean missiles have directly threatened Americans that live in, in the island of Guam, which is part of the United States. That would be a threat to the homeland. And of course, with these longer range missiles. So all three countries have a very deep interest on ensuring that they have appropriate, timely queuing as well as the capability to knock down these weapons before they reach their targets from the peninsula in South Korea to Japan, as well as the homeland United States. President Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un have also been in talks about weapons transfers to Russia and this payment could aid North Korea's nuclear ambitions. So what is Russia's role in the conflict between the North and South Koreas? Well, I look at this relationship as a return to the height of the Cold War at the end of the Korean War, the, the Kim regime, Kim, Kim Il-sung, actually purged all of the Chinese supporters, and he had the Chinese leave Pyongyang early in the 50s. So there's really no, I guess, deep friendship with Beijing. Their number one during the throughout most of the Cold War was the Soviet Union. They relied on them for massive support. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, they had to go elsewhere, you know, go resorting to nefarious means of raising funds. So this, this outreach front by Moscow to Pyongyang could signal a return to 
what had been the norm back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And that actually is very troubling because it provides more funding and also more technological capabilities that that regime could use for a range of nefarious purposes and that they've used to kill South Koreans in the past. The attack on the Chonan in 2010 comes to mind. Very important topic here. Brent Sadler at the Center for National Defense, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, student loan repayments starting up again. Borrowers are facing some tough decisions. Entity's Don Ma has some advice on student loan repayment. And the grand final of the NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant is coming up. One contender tells us how the event has changed her misconceptions about women. Stay tuned to find out more. Good to have you back. Student loan repayments will resume on Sunday, October 1st. Nearly 44 million Americans will have to start repaying their student debt. Now, here with us live is, you guessed it, NTD business host Don Ma. Hi, good morning, Don. Now, please tell us, for those that are impacted, what is it they need to know? Yeah, of course. Uh, so now, according to the Consumer Financial Bureau, uh, around one in five people with student loans are actually likely to struggle uh, once uh, their payments resume in October. Uh, according to official data, um, the average student loan borrower owes, owes over $37,000. And you know, this could cost an average of up to $300 a month. And for some people, that's a lot of money. And for those students uh, that have, uh, sorry, for those that have student debt, uh, one thing you need to be aware of that interest on federal student loans has already started accumulating. So what you should do first is log into your studentaid.gov account and check your uh, loan servicer. And then you should log into uh, your account with your servicer to see your loan balance, uh, you know, monthly payment amount and interest rate. Hmm, good to know. And yeah, like you said, $300 a month can be a quite a big chunk now so how are student loan borrowers feeling about this well you know we have to pay the debt that we owe right but you know of course a lot of, a lot of them wish that uh, payments weren't restarting you know if it were me I would wish the same uh, in fact according to a bank rate survey nearly a quarter of Americans with student loan debt say their biggest financial regret is actually borrowing too much uh, for their education uh, you know some people face uh, what they face is simply they might just have to cut back on their uh, monthly ex expenses to accommodate this extra expense um, that you know they haven't had really for a long time. Hmm. Now, some may for some it may be more difficult to make those payments on time. What happens if you miss a payment? Right. You know, I, I understand things are hard right now for a lot of Americans, and sometimes it's just it's just not possible to make payments on time. But if you do happen to miss a payment, uh, the good news is that the typical consequences won't be enacted until October of next year. So what that means is that borrowers who miss payments will not be labeled as delinquent. Uh, the Department of Education has said uh, it won't report a borrower to a credit company for missed payments. But, you know, missing payments may still have the potential to impact your credit score. So we got to keep that in mind as well. But the impact should be less than being labeled as delinquent. Hmm. Some really in, uh, useful information this morning. What else do you have for us this morning? 
Yeah, uh, it seems like Costco is, is selling gold bars online. Uh, the company said these one ounce gold bars are hot items, it seems like. Uh, the members only bars usually sell out within hours. Gold is actually considered a safe investment in troubled economic times. Gold prices increased over uh, the last year by over 2%. Uh, the uh, one ounce bar is currently selling for just under $2,000. Um, yeah, I mean, other than that, that's all from me this morning, Evelyn. Well, thank you as always, Don, host of NTD Business. Thank you, Evelyn. And an event of beauty and class bringing together 32 contestants from around the world. The final round of the NTD Global Chinese Pageant kicks off tomorrow. The competition has a special mission to revive the aesthetic values found in traditional culture. One of the finalists says the contest changed her misconceptions about women. Let's hear her story. My name is Yuqing Yang. I am 21 years old, born and raised in Jiangsu province of China, and I came to France in 2022 to continue my third-year college study of business administration studies. I think what makes the NTD's beauty pageant stand out is its emphasis on a beauty that emanates from within, and that genuine beauty is rooted in goodness and traditional values. Interestingly, the Chinese characters for beauty and goodness share a striking resemblance in their form. Hence, I aim to demonstrate to people that beauty and goodness are inseparable. I strongly believe that a person's benevolence and empathy toward others constitute true beauty. As an individual who was born and raised in China, I find this competition has altered my misconceptions about women. There is a lack of belief in China. The traditional culture has been ruined. The feminine side of women, gentleness and consideration, has been intentionally suppressed. Participating in this beauty pageant has afforded me the chance to reconnect with tradition, learn about and embrace the demeanor of Chinese women, and incorporate gentleness in my speech as well as dignity in my posture. This is something I have long sought after since my childhood. I have always had a deep admiration for both Chinese and Western classical art. Visiting the Louvre to see the Renaissance masterpieces is something I particularly enjoy. To me, the angels and figures depicted in these paintings encapsulate a celestial elegance. Similarly, Miss NTD promotes the idea that beauty originates from heaven. I genuinely believe that beauty has a divine essence and is derived from a higher realm. As ordinary individuals, we can embody this beauty by embracing traditional values and moral principles. Through the practice of these ideals, we can uncover the truly beautiful aspects within our cultural heritage. Through this competition and exploring traditional culture and etiquette, I have come to realize that we should do things with a peaceful mind. The ancient Chinese philosophy positions humanity as the intermediary between heaven and earth, thereby forming the three domains. We should not engage in relentless pursuit or competition. Instead, we should be grateful for the blessings bestowed by heaven and earth and understand heaven's requirement for us, that is, to be a good person and do good deeds. Any of our undertakings are to provide service to society. It shouldn't be deemed as personal achievements. This beauty pageant is like the selection of government officials in ancient times. It was based on its virtues and integrity, promoting righteous values. It helps us see the beauty and richness of our tradition, hence changing our impetuous mentality to reacquire the value of goodness. Okay.
是最重要的。The final competition and coronation are set for this coming Saturday. Tickets are available online at MissNTD.org. Yeah, exciting. And also, we're kicking off the second part of our broadcast now. The House and Senate split on efforts to avert a government shutdown, and reports emerge of a contingency plan for the House Speaker role. The South Carolina State Library has officially cut ties with the American Library Association. We speak to an expert to get his insight into the issue. We hear from a war veteran who says he was told to leave his nursing home residence to make way for migrant housing. TikTok mining the close contacts of high-profile celebrities and politicians. A new report reveals what the China-owned company's internal tools are capable of. And one of the world's most beloved drinks is being celebrated today. You may be drinking some right now. Welcome back, and we're continuing with our top news, which has the payment of many government employees on the line. That's right. It's just two days before a possible government shutdown. Some conservative House Republicans are reportedly working on a contingency plan in case of efforts to oust Speaker McCarthy, who has been facing threats to his position for weeks. Congress is split on the path to avert a shutdown Sunday, with the House and Senate at odds on a bipartisan bill. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest on the efforts to avoid a shutdown. Congress is at a crossroads before a seemingly imminent government shutdown on Sunday. Lawmakers in the House of Representatives stayed late into the night Thursday and passed three or four spending bills, none of which would avert a shutdown and are unlikely to make it through the Senate. Funding for the Department of Agriculture failed, with 27 Republicans voting against it, while funding to finance the Department of Defense, Department of State, and the Department of Homeland Security advanced. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer urged Speaker McCarthy to follow the upper chamber's approach. Its bipartisan stopgap bill known as a continuing resolution, or CR, would keep the government open through November 17th. The solution remains clear. Speaker McCarthy needs to stop letting the MAGA radicals drive his decisions and do the obvious and sensible thing. Senator Josh Hawley says the solution is for Schumer to address Ukraine separately. The House is passing appropriate bills. We should, we've so far passed zero appropriations bills in the Senate. I'd just like to point out, zero. So. We're not really in a position to cast stones vis-a-vis -vis the House. I mean, people complain about the House, and it's done nothing. So my view is pass a short-term CR clean. Senator Rick Scott took a similar stance, saying Ukraine deserves its own bill with amendments and discussion. I'm on budget. We don't do a budget, right? They don't do a budget. Then they'll do a CR. Oh, we had, couldn't get it done. Didn't even try. But they, couldn't get it done. And then, then we'll have an omnibus at Christmas that will spend more money than you could ever imagine. The Senate stopgap bill could take until Monday to pass if GOP Senator Ron Paul slows down the process over demands it drop the $6.2 billion price tag for Ukraine. GOP senators are trying to cut a deal to give Paul an amendment vote in exchange for allowing the process to speed up. Schumer told senators to be prepared for a procedural vote on the bill Saturday morning if they fail to secure a time agreement. The bill is sure to meet opposition from some House Republicans, with McCarthy already having vowed to amend it. No, that thing is dead over here. Are you kidding me? Why? Well, first of all, you continue spending. You have $6.2 billion for Ukraine. Um, they do nothing to secure our southern border. Uh, that is just a non-starter. The Senate needs to get real. 
A group of Senate negotiators are currently working to add border security amendments to the Senate stopgap bill. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is bringing his own continuing resolution to the floor Friday in hopes of meeting Saturday's deadline. I believe we need a stopgap measure to keep government open and that's what we'll propose on Friday to be able to have keep the government open and while the same time helping us secure the border. He says some Democratic senators he's talked to are open to border provisions in the Senate's current bill. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. With Biden's impeachment hearing coming when a government shutdown could be just days away, Democrats raise the question, what takes priority? But Republicans argue the evidence for impeachment creates a sense of urgency. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more on what lawmakers on both sides have to say. Republicans say there are serious concerns about whether or not President Biden is compromised because of his son's foreign business deals. Republicans, though, defend their having this hearing today, saying that the evidence they have presented provides a level of urgency. I think you're seeing a puzzle come together. Influence peddling. While Joe Biden was vice president, talking about corruption and in charge of foreign policy, that is concerning that they were trying to find ways to protect joe biden even though it is very clear from the text messages that joe biden is involved yet two days ago the bank wire to joe biden's house from beijing for a quarter of a million dollars when i asked democrats specifically about this piece of evidence here's what they had to say in response i mean to be clear also i mean the, the uh, hunter biden lived for a period of time with with with, with his father so that, that that evidence means nothing but not a smidgen of evidence that uh, president biden has committed a high crime all assertions that Democrats and President Biden himself deny. The White House has repeatedly this week tried to brush off this hearing, continuing to say that this is an example of political extremism and continuing by that talking point that President Biden has no involvement in Hunter Biden's foreign business deals. This issue is long from over, though. We can expect to continue to see these chairmen pushing these investigations, especially as we approach the 2024 elections. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup. NTD News. And we have more updates for you on the prosecution of former President Trump in Georgia. In a surprise decision, Trump is not seeking to move his case to federal court. Former President Trump's lawyers said on Thursday that Trump will not seek to move the Georgia election case against him from state to federal court. This could simplify his path to trial. As Trump's legal team put it, this decision is based on his well-founded confidence that this honorable court intends to fully and completely protect his constitutional right to a fair trial and guarantee him due process of law. Five of Trump's co-defendants are trying to move their cases to the federal level. Trump was initially expected to join them because he might face a friendlier jury in a federal court than in Fulton County, Georgia, a Democratic stronghold. Seeking to move the case would also have mired it in hearings and appeals. Prosecutors are pushing to try all 19 defendants together as soon as October 23rd, but the judge in the case says he's skeptical about that timeline. On Wednesday, Trump co-defendant Sidney Powell accused Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis of prosecutorial misconduct. Powell's attorney said in a court filing that Fulton County prosecutors must have presented a misleading and false case to the grand jury, or the grand jury simply rubber-stamped the indictment. Powell is asking for transcripts from both grand juries. Meanwhile, the Georgia state senator who demanded an investigation into Fonnie Willis was suspended from the GOP caucus Thursday. 
Georgia Senate Republicans said State Senator Colton Moore knowingly misled people during his call for an investigation, caused unnecessary tension and hostility, and put his colleagues at risk of personal harm. Moore responded saying, I will continue to expose Fonnie Willis and the rhinos covering for her. Turning to some culture issues, the South Carolina State Library terminated its membership with the American Library Association. Let's delve into this. Mike Gonzalez, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of the book BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution, joins us live. Good morning, Mike. Why did the South Carolina State Library leave the ALA? Well, for very good reasons. Uh, the American Library Association has now for a long time uh, has joined the culture wars. They are fighting uh, the effort uh, of the efforts of parents to, to have some say over keeping uh, pornography out of libraries. Nobody's banning these books. We're just saying that uh, some books which have graphic uh, depictions of sex should not be shown to, to young children. And the American Library Association calls this book banning. The American Library Association also last year elected a self-avowed Marxist lesbian as its president. And she's it's not just a personal lifestyle that she, that she keeps up to herself. She says she wants to use libraries as, as places of socialist organizing and as places to, 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 to wrestle with our history of class warfare and, and, and uh, uh, sexual oppression and racial oppression. Uh, this is not your grandmother's library. This is a very different, uh, the, 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 the cultural left, the Marxist cultural left has invaded uh, libraries just as they have invaded schools and museums. And I think that parents have a right to say no. And South Carolina is not the only state to do this. Montana, Missouri, and Texas, their state libraries have also left the ALA recently. And there's right-wing lawmakers and even places like Illinois that are considering doing the same. So what is the connection here between this self-described Marxist lesbian and graphic material in these libraries? Well, they, look, I would say they're conservative, not right-wing. <clears throat> there's nine other states that are fighting the ALA uh, attempt to train, uh, to train librarians across the country, uh, to to to, for, for example, keep out Christian groups. They they, 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 one of the top officials of the ALA was caught on camera uh, explaining how uh, librarians can keep a Christian group, a Christian group, from having a, a story hour. Of course, at the same time, they have a queer story hour with uh, transgender people uh, dancing around. This is a, a concerted effort by the left, which takes over the cultural places of teaching, especially the teaching of young children, <clears throat> to, to, to spread their ideology. Parents have woken up to this. I've been traveling the country for the last three years, and I can tell you parents are very aware of this. They're awake to the woke, and they are, they're saying no. And um, for the first and Mike, time in a very we time, part here, I just want to ask you, Republican governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon, he said that this is a media stunt trying to pull the state library out of the ALA. What's your comment on that briefly? I haven't seen that. Uh, I don't think it's a media stunt. I think that politicians who don't who say they don't want to relitigate the culture wars are not uh, understanding what time it is. I think America is beginning to wake up uh, to the fear, to, to the threat of what's taking place. Mike Gonzalez at the Heritage Foundation. It was great speaking with you. Thank you. Well, Marxism coming to the U.S. like that, it's, it's definitely concerning.
Well, yeah. It should be taken seriously. Yeah, and some states are saying that there's not an ability to uphold their duty to the Constitution if they go with an organization that's led by a self-described Marxist. We're going to go into the break now. A 95-year-old war veteran shares his shocking story. He says he was kicked out of his New York nursing home to make way for migrant housing. And TikTok employees worldwide able to access the close contacts of politicians and celebrities. We have more on an investigation into the company's back-end tools. Welcome back. We're going over to New York where a 95-year-old war veteran says he was forced to leave his nursing home after the facility was sold to become shelter for illegal, illegal immigrants. The man attended a press conference with a New York congresswoman on Monday where he spoke about his ordeal. Entities Cost Hemenes brings us this report. Korean War veteran Frank Tamaro said he was given only two months to find a new place to stay. He said the nursing home, Island Shores, did not allow for sufficient time to protest the decision. The thing I'm annoyed about is how they did it. It was very disgraceful what they did to the people in Island Shores. Tamaro said had it not been for his daughter, he would have been homeless. I said, no, 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 you're not moving me. And they said, yes, 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 we are. And it, uh, everything was done behind closed doors. Yeah. And we didn't have a chance to actually make any attempt to stop them because there wasn't enough time. Speaking at a press conference on Monday, New York Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis said she was outraged at the decision. She went on to say that tax dollars should not be utilized to house citizens of other countries, especially at the expense of our senior citizens and veterans who put their lives on the line, pay taxes their whole lives and build our communities. Adding that it shows our country and our city's priorities are backwards. Tens of thousands of migrants have come to New York City over the last year, putting strain on the city's infrastructure and facilities. According to a New York City official, the city's Department of Social Services said that the migrant facility would open there this week. NTD has reached out to New York's Department of Social Services, but didn't receive a reply in time for broadcast. Cost MNS, NTD News. A federal appeals court has ruled that a Tennessee law banning types of cross-sex procedures for transgender youth can go into effect. This according to the American Civil Liberties Union and Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Skirmetti yesterday. The decision followed an earlier lawsuit by the ACLU and several other groups against the state to block the law. The law makes it illegal for providers to provide additional care for minors who identify as a gender inconsistent with their gender assigned at birth. Minors identifying as transgender who started treatment in the state before July 1st will need to stop by end of March next year. A similar law was passed in Kentucky earlier this year. The Tennessee law was previously allowed to remain in effect by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals pending the lawsuit. The court highlighted that major medical associations are working with the transgender community and approved of procedures such as puberty blockers, but added their approach was changed over the decades. In the lawsuit, families argued that their 14th Amendment rights were violated. 
Now to social media. High-profile celebrities and politicians using TikTok could be having their closest personal contacts exposed. That's according to Forbes, which says it obtained internal company materials and tools and spoke to people who have used them. Forbes found one of TikTok's tools allows any employee around the world to access sensitive information about a person by using a back-end ID. It includes a list of connections and information about them with the ability to sort by closest ties. Searches brought up close ties of the first family, senators, campaign accounts, actors, and top CEOs. Some of the materials show the tool can target networks of people with differing political views or those critical of the Chinese regime. Pop-ups on TikTok repeatedly ask you to sync your contacts. Close to half of the U.S. uses the China-owned app. And Amazon has responded to the Federal Trade Commission's lawsuit. The company says the suit would lead to higher prices and slower deliveries for consumers. The FTC alleges in its antitrust lawsuit that Amazon forces sellers to use its delivery services in warehouses, driving up costs for consumers and sellers alike. Let's hear a perspective on this. Joining me now is Jeffrey Tucker, a senior columnist for the Epic Times and the president of the Brownstone Institute. It's great to speak with you, Jeffrey. Mm, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Does the FTC have a strong or weak case against Amazon, and why? Uh, it seems very weak. Uh, Amazon has definitely grown inordinately over the last three and a half, four, five years. But a lot of that was due to the pandemic response that government itself imposed. So, uh, you know, it's funny to say, oh, we're going to have government fix the very problem that government created. But if you look at the, the data itself, yes, it's a very large company with a huge number of uh, services and that sort of thing and a large amount of domination, market domination. But actually, in fact, it only uh, has about a third of all digital sales online. So the competition is very uh, intense out there. Its margins are relatively small. So, and it's going to be very difficult to come up with a case for that, oh, Amazon's exploiting consumers. If that's true, why do people keep using it? So I would say that this, this investigation is going to take many years, but it's not going to amount to much. It's an interesting perspective. And Amazon says that the FTC has a fundamental misunderstanding of retail. Can you unpack this? Uh, well, so uh, Amazon has an unusual model. So it's not just selling its own products that is doing that, but it's also providing a platform for many other people, many other merchants to sell their, their products too. And so uh, we've not uh, been in this world before. The FTC's antitrust regulations and formulas don't really apply in this case. So it's a, it's, a, it's a continuing problem. The government doesn't really understand well the markets that, it's, that itself is in charge of regulating. And I think that's what that remark refers to. So the FTC said that there's these anti-discounting measures that punish sellers for offering lower prices than what Amazon has to offer. So do you consider this a fair business practice if it is allegedly happening? Well, I'm sorry to say, but I, I sort of think it is in a sense that Amazon does own the platform and it does like to put it, push its own products. You know, uh, anybody who complains about this is free to start their own uh, website, which many of them have and do. So th there, many uh, retailers are just looking for advantage on the platform, and I get that. I understand that. But... Uh, you know, I'm sorry, you know, business is hard, uh, competition is tough, 
And it, it just shows that this is this is competition. Just because Amazon owns the platform and can game the system to reward consumers for buying their stuff as versus somebody else's does not make it unfair. The other thing is that Amazon has a really strong, very open source system of user ratings. And to my knowledge, Amazon's never been accused of gaming those things, whether it's books or you know houseplants or cleaning products or tomatoes, uh, everybody can rate everything. And Amazon's very freely puts those things up there. So you know, consumers are very well informed. It's a unique perspective that you bring, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Tucker, president of the Brownstone Institute, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Tucker makes his case that the FTC doesn't have grounds for its lawsuit. Well, we have years to find out, but speaking of grounds, happy Friday, everyone. It's also a National Coffee Day. America's Darling Drink is being celebrated today. The aroma, the flavor, the caffeine boost, many of us can't start the day without it, including myself. But did you know, legend has it, that an Ethiopian goat herder discovered coffee beans around 850 A.D.? Local monks learned how to roast the beans and steep them in hot water, and so coffee was born. Check your favorite shop for deals today. That rich brown color just looks so inviting. Yeah, but you, I thought you probably won't ever try it, will nope. you? Yeah, I. that's what I thought. <laughs> Maybe one day. But also, goats were on the loose in New York. The goats were intercepted by police officers who used their canine dog to shepherd the escaped animals back to their pen on Monday. Police say around 30 of the animals were rented by a local homeowner to clear an area of his property of foliage. Goats are a natural weed killer, but these goats escaped and wandered around the residential neighborhood. Police dog Pietro managed to swiftly guide them home. It's a slightly unusual mission for a dog that typically locates missing people and hidden narcotics. They have been used as weed whackers before pretty effectively. You mean the goats? Yeah. Yeah. What a, yeah, I've never gotten that idea that you can hire goats to weed your grass and clear your, um, that's great. Yeah, all those invasive species, they got to go. <laughs> yes. All right. And, you know, I've been trying to find um, an alternative for coffee, actually. Okay. But it's not really, it's not really going well thus far. Maybe if you can share some tips later on. <laughs> oh, they say America runs on Dunkin', so. Yeah. All right. Well, we have an interview in the works with our health reporter about how coffee affects your health. So look out for that as well. That's all for today's program, though. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com if you have any e uh, feedback that you would like to send us through, e uh, through email. That's it for this week. I'm Evelyn Lee. Thanks for watching. And I'm Kevin Hogan.